above it all in your name. It's unfailing, it's unshaken, it's undeniable, and it's unchanging. God, we, as believers and as people, we just go back and forth with the wind. And yet you are firm and you are steady. Help us to cling to that and not become rigid in our own personal belief, but to become rooted and grounded in the truth of who you are. Always showing love and grace, hope and forgiveness. But not allowing our faith to be just tossed around like a leaf in the wind. Father God, it doesn't matter what the kingdoms of earth do because we belong to an eternal kingdom. And may we walk in that and may we show that to others around us in your name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat, my friends. Thank you, worship team. As Jen mentioned, um, we are in need of extra people. We have a couple people who are just taking the summer off and a couple of people that are leaving. So... um, for work or for whatever reasons. So we do need additional musicians. It's interesting, at one time, you know, people felt like, oh, we have too many musicians because they don't all get enough turns. And now I'm like, we should have had more because now we're short. So please, if you are a musician, if you know someone who is, who's, again, we're not trying to take somebody from one church to another, but um, I read a statistic, it was about two, three years ago, I've shared it before, but the number of Christians that are unattached to churches in America that are actually followers of Jesus that say, yes, I'm a believer, that are not attached to churches in America, is at an all-time high. They say nearly um, one-third of Bible-believing professing professing Christians do not attend church more than once every six to eight weeks. It's once every six to eight weeks or less. And these are the people who are already saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. They're not plugged in. They're not planted. If they're attending only every six to eight weeks, they're probably not really having that life-changing experience, that community-building experience that we desire to create. Now, are we perfect at that? No, I've said many times, we need to get better at creating community. And we're going to have some opportunities this summer. We're going to have some different families host a barbecue. All you'll have to do is sign up and find out if they're doing a potluck or how they're doing it, and then you go. They're going to host them um, three or four times throughout the summer. We're not asking you to even necessarily be a host. If you're interested in hosting, I always like to host. Then I don't have to go anywhere. (laughs) Come on, people, come here. That way I don't have to go anywhere. But if you're interested in hosting, let me know because we'd love to, um, you know, have you be a host family. And then throughout the month of uh, May and early June, you'll be taking, like, sign-ups. You'll be connecting with other people in two weeks, actually, though not Mother's Day because it's not a good time to launch something. But the week after Mother's Day, we're actually going to have people in the lobby that will be saying, hey, I'm going to host these dates. Come and join me. So if that's of interest to you, please let us know because we'd love to have you be a part of it. Uh, Our own worship leader, Jen, she's doing hers a little different. She's hosting each Sunday in July other than our service on the lawn week because she's like, It'll be, yeah, after church each Sunday in July, if you want to sign up and go to hers, she'll be doing it three weeks in a row because she's like, I can't spread it out over the summer, but I want to host. So if that's you and you go, you know, Jeff, I work Monday through Friday and a lot of Saturdays. Sunday's my only day off. Perfect. Then let's really make it a day off and don't even cook lunch. Go to Jen's and have lunch after after church, not during church, not instead of church. (laughs) She'll be here, but after church you can. So if you are interested, though, in hosting, 
um, let me know. And then, like I said, in two weeks, we'll be kicking it off and we'll be having people that just go, you know, I don't want to host, but I'd love to get to know other people in my church better. You'll be hosting four to six families right in there. And, um, you know, some will be potluck, some will probably be, you know, whatever, however they want to do it. I'm letting the host decide. So, starting a new series today on the book, on the, not the book, the person of Paul. And um, somebody asked me, how do you decide what you're going to speak on? Well, I read, I listen to sermons, I try to figure things out, and here's a little secret. I try to go, throughout the year, I try to do Old Testament, New Testament, topical, character. It's this bouncing back and forth. It's either Old Testament or New Testament, and then some are topical, and some are what I call character studies. Who in the Bible did something? And so I wanted to do the life of Paul. I actually wanted to do the life of Paul last year, because I read a new book that I got about Paul, and um, actually it's a book I got a long time ago, but I finally got around to reading it last year by F.F. Bruce on the life of Paul, and I was like, man, it's so much more Like, there's so much history that we don't even realize that affected Paul's writing. And Paul is the most prolific writer in the New Testament. We should do this. We should look at this. We should examine this to see how does this affect who I am as a believer today. Many of us, we grew up in church. You heard the stories in Sunday school, but you don't necessarily, you know the stories, but you don't even necessarily know how they connect. Other people come into the church. They see that there's this kind of these rituals and traditions we do, but they don't necessarily know why we do them. One of them is communion. Paul writes more about communion than anyone else. Jesus establish it, establishes us doing it, but much of what we know about it is what Paul wrote about it. And so Paul is shaping our theology, whether you realize that or not. So I want you to understand, I want to accomplish a couple things through this. I want you to better understand his life, I want you to know who he was, but I want you to also know that many of our concepts that we have regarding grace, forgiveness, and even the concept of community within the church all comes because of what Paul wrote. He's the one who shaped and shared and showed us how to do this. I've heard many people say, I wish we could just go back to the early church model. And I often think, really? Because do you realize that they met in homes in small groups, because they were hiding, because people were trying to kill them. Because if you want that, you know, I'll chase you around with a bat and start hitting you or something (laughs) until you do what I tell you. So what we want is we want this idea of this cozy little, everybody did this and they all came together and they all shared. Although, try to, you know, preach true socialism in the church and people in America really start getting worried and offended. So we don't really want exactly what the early church had. We want a model of it. And that's what the church is supposed to be. We cannot copy because we are not the same people in the same time in the same place. We can never duplicate what that was because it's not the way our world and our society works. And if we want to be effective, what Paul tells us is we got to get out there and do this. It's not about just knowing, it's about doing, which is the main point of today's message. So when I get to it, you'll go, ah, yeah, he mentioned that earlier. See, that's a little, that's a little foreshadowing, okay? So you might want to jot that down. Oh, he said this is the main point. All right, so here's a little bit about Paul, just so you know. Here's what we know. We don't know everything, but we do know things from both Scripture as well as a few outside writings. He was born between 5 B.C. and 5 Common Era. 
So around the same time as Jesus, in case you didn't know, Jesus was actually born in 4 BC because when they went back to do the calendar, they counted back and then they realized later through more study and um, examination that they were actually off by a few years. So Jesus was born in 4 BC. So Paul was born around the same time as Jesus. Some people have it as late as 7 to 10, common era, but more conservative scholars go is between 5 and 5. He was a Roman citizen by birth, Although this is extremely difficult to verify, he states it, and there are several other things that show that he probably was. Claims to be a Roman citizen, which if you falsely claimed that, that was punishable by death. You could be executed as a punishment by claiming to be a a Roman citizen and not really being. So it wasn't something people necessarily threw out there a lot. It wasn't like, oh yeah, this is what I am. It's the old, um, when I was growing up, for some reason, everybody claimed to be so much Cherokee or so much Native American or so like, oh yeah, well my great grandpa's half Sioux and you're like, really? There's no way to prove that. Now we have 23 and me and we're going, no, that's not true at all. But there was no way to prove it. However, it was punishable by death if it wasn't true. So it was likely true. It allowed, it him, allowed and afforded him access to places where others couldn't go. Roman citizens had the right to go to certain places and to travel to different villages without having any other papers other than a paper that said they are a citizen of Rome. And there's two ways to become one. You could be born into it, or you could be granted citizenship by the Roman government. The most common way to be granted was to do something for the government that they considered essential, or to be a soldier in their army and to serve a period of time. However, you could also buy your way in. So you could, if you were wealthy and you wanted the advantages, if you were a merchant or a trader, you could buy your way in. We have no idea how Paul's family became Roman citizens, but we do know this. He was born a Roman citizen. Now, um, that comes up throughout the book of Acts, and it's critical if you follow his life arc because that's what allowed him to come and go city to city. And even when he's under house arrest, instead of being in prison, When they find out he's a Roman citizen, they move him to house arrest. Because although he could still be punished, we don't want the Roman government coming down on us. So it gave him a certain flexibility. Um, He was born to a devoutly religious Jewish family in Tarsus. Tarsus was known for its education system. It's known for its university. It had been one of the most influential cities in all of Asia Minor. His family were likely tent makers because we know that that's what he did, and that required an incredible skill. Because remember, it's not just making a tent. It's your tents have to hold together through sandstorms. They're in the desert. They have to hold together for years through extreme weather conditions. And you go, well, why were tents so important if they had villages? Because all of the Roman military moved place to place. The Roman Empire became what it was because the military could move place to place, and tents were critical to them. And there is speculation, again, this is just speculation, but there's outside writings that say more than likely Paul's parents, grandparents, somewhere along that line had a contract with the Roman government. That's how they got their citizenship. Because they weren't in Rome, but they were Roman citizens. It was also an incredibly lucrative job of the day. If you were a tent maker, you weren't just a seamstress. You were sewing difficult things, and you were putting them together, and if you had a reputation as a tent maker, people knew the quality of what you produced. 
So it paid very well. It required an apprenticeship. Oftentimes people would have to apprentice between three and five years. I have a, a former student that's apprenticing to be an electrician, and we were talking about it this week, and when he told me what he had to do to be an apprentice, I was like, nope, I could never be an electrician. Basically, you're working for well below what you're worth for the next three to five years so that he gets the right to do it. They would have had an apprenticeship and they would take young people, usually between the ages of 12 and 14, and they would have worked for between three and six years for free. No pay, you just work. You got to eat and you got to live. And yet Paul is born into this. So already you can see he has certain cultural advantages, certain financial advantages. He has something to risk. His father's a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were teachers, but they were also the ones making sure everybody else was following the rules. It was a highly respected position and a highly feared position. So now you've got somebody with money, somebody who's a Roman citizen, somebody whose father is a religious leader, and what you get is somebody who's incredibly pious about who they are. Paul is a man who's incredibly arrogant and pious about who he is and what he has the right to do. He was raised knowing the Torah and was an educated man. He was sent as a child to study in Jerusalem at the Gamaliel School. The Gamaliel School then, as well as today, is known for both its religious teachings, but also taught literature, philosophy, ethics. And it was one of the premier education facilities in the world at that time. Roman leaders sent their children to Jerusalem to be educated here, and that's where Paul was sent to school. It's like having an exclusive boarding school. My daughter went to a very, very nice private school when she was young. Um, we were blessed. We got a scholarship. We paid $1,000 a year for a school that the tuition was 18000 a year. And these are the kids she went to school with. These are the kids that grew up. These were people who owned, not worked for, but owned Fortune 500 companies. When she was in the fifth grade, her best friend's dad sold his company for $110 million. It actually made the news because he had started the company himself. When she was in fifth grade, she also came home. She was angry because we never take her to the Super Bowl and five of the kids in her class were going that year. <laughs> one of which was the niece of the coach of the Giants. One of which his father was playing in the Super Bowl, but that didn't seem to matter to her one of which was the vice president of football operations for the San Diego Chargers. That was his daughter was in her class. It just all came together in one year that players and coaches and others all, so five of the kids in her class got to go to the Super Bowl and we never take her. She's right, we don't. But these are the people that Paul's going to school with, the religious elite of the day these kids that he was studying with, their parents were influential. Paul's got a lot to risk. You have to understand, he's a pious and an arrogant person. He's the son of a wealthy family. He's a Roman citizen. He's got everything to risk. And then he uses that to go and persecute those who don't follow the religious laws and those who are preaching Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Because he sees that 
as a threat. He sees it as an insult. He sees it as contrary to what he's always been taught. And so he goes and he begins to execute people who are followers of the way. People who are followers of Jesus. It's called followers of the way because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And his early followers were called the way. The earliest people that were called Christians, it was meant as an insult. And as Paul is doing that, we have recorded in early Acts where it says he's at the, cruci- the stoning of Stephen and he's the one who's guarding the pile of coats while the people went to kill him. He's going around striking fear and causing the church to go underground and hiding. And then somewhere between the year 32 and 36, Paul is on his way from one city to another to persecute and to kill those who claim to follow the way. And he encounters this bright light. And the voice asks him from this light, why are you persecuting me? It's post-crucifixion and resurrection, we know that. So we don't know the exact year, but approximately the year 30 is when the crucifixion happened. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Paul calls it an untimely appearance. In other words, really messed up my day. That's how Paul describes it himself. He's blinded and he spends the next three days in prayer and fasting, refusing to eat. Says he was led by the hand into the city. And then one brave follower of Christ comes out to pray for him. And after his sight returns, he immediately goes to be baptized. Again, when people say, why isn't there a class for baptism? Because the examples we have in Scripture, we have three examples, and every one somebody shows up and gets baptized. We have John the Baptist, he's baptizing people, Jesus shows up, I'm next. We have the Ethiopian with Philip. They're riding along, he goes, there's water, why shouldn't I be baptized? Paul, he's blind for three days, gets his sight back, understands that this healing comes from God. He says, I need to be baptized. Again, I'm not against teaching on baptism. It's a beautiful thing. And if you want to get baptized, we're planning on doing one at our service on the lawn this year. A little outdoor baptism. The water will be cold, but it'll be warm once you get out. So if you haven't been baptized, or you haven't been baptized as an adult, and you want to make that step, we would love to have you get baptized. Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 22 tells us this. My, one of my favorite scriptures in all of the text. It says, Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogue, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that very purpose? so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He's on his way to persecute and torture Christians. He has an encounter with Jesus, and it says immediately, he gets his sight restored, he gets baptized, and he goes to the synagogue that week and begins preaching. 
Yet we don't want anybody to ever say anything until they've been through eight years of classes. Again, I'm not against formal education. I got one. I'm not sure if it did me any good, but I got one. And then after I finished my formal education, I went back and did four more years to get another degree. And yet, never was that what it took to qualify me. What it took to be qualified was Jesus. The other thing is, notice this. It doesn't say they put him up on a pulpit or on a platform. It says he went out and began to preach immediately. Too oftentimes we're looking for position before we're willing to do that. And he says position is often given to those who are willing to stand up and preach to those around them. To the people that he encountered every day. He wasn't teaching on the Sabbath. He was teaching those who showed up to learn, those he encountered, the people on his left and the right, the very people that he was chasing after. He's teaching. And he says he stays with them and he learns from them and he grows with them. Because he knew he didn't know it all. And too often times, we want position to give us authority so I can tell people what to do. No. Start preaching to the person on your left and your right. Start preaching to those around you. No class, no training. He's sharing his personal experience. People can argue with every idea you have, but they have no grounds to argue with your personal experience. And see, too oftentimes, our personal experience, it morphs and it changes and things didn't happen the way I wanted or the way I saw. And so we become disillusioned. But if we'll go back to that moment at which I had a genuine encounter with Jesus, suddenly it makes more sense again. Is the church perfect? No, it messes up all the time. It doesn't show enough grace. It doesn't give enough forgiveness. It doesn't offer love easily enough. We want people to be like us before they can be a part of us. And I think that's almost contrary to Scripture. Scripture says everybody can come in, and if you see who Jesus is, let's be like him together. Acts 9.31 says this, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Once Paul stopped torturing them, it says that they were edified and they were multiplied. They were multiplied because people were sharing with the person across the table from them, the people in their own homes. Paul spends time there learning and developing. So I'm not saying discard the value of true study. But it's not our job to become the gatekeepers who lock others that don't agree with us 100% out. I'm not here to force people into a mold. People are not jello. Jello's great in molds. People are not. Jello needs to be shaped people need to be able to be who they are. Now, are there things God wants to do in us and through us? Yes, absolutely. I believe that there are standards. It's a life marked by the fruit of the Spirit. But let's not get caught up in religious ritual that says, then I get to. 
Let's share the truth of who Jesus is in my life with the people around us this week by the way I speak, by the way I love them, by the way I serve them. Sharing the gospel at all times and when necessary, using words. That's what I want us to be, is a people who share the gospel. A people who take the gospel around the world, not because we have to, but because we have opportunity to. We're going to get into, over the next few weeks, we're going to get into Paul's life. We're going to talk about his writings. We're going to talk about his missionary journeys. We're going to talk about some of his influence on the church today. And also some of the warnings of who we are not to become. Because Paul warns us, don't be like this group. Don't be like those people. Because he looked at the religious leaders and saw them as gatekeepers, worrying about who they could keep out, not as door greeters saying, come on in. We gotta be door greeters that say, come on in, everybody's welcome. Come in, kneel down, pray with us, learn from us, discover who God is in a real and meaningful way with us. Paul went from being a religious man that was a very bad man to somebody who breaks the rules and the rituals because he begins to understand grace and who God is. He writes a lot of our theology and our understanding of God, but it didn't happen until he shed what he already believed. He shed the old ideas and the old ways to say, this is who I need to become. What areas of our life are we holding on to out of ritual that God's saying, you need to shed that so that I can use you in a real and a meaningful way? I don't know that I could have lived in that first century as a believer. I don't know. I mean, it's scary. The thought of being persecuted, the thought of being pursued, the thought of having to give up my ritual and tradition in order to do this. And yet I look around me and I say, the church is still full of ritual and tradition. And I think because of that, because of some of the things we hold on to, we miss out on really impacting and connecting people to God. Something I've said my entire ministry, and I believe it more now than I ever believed it, even years ago, is that I'm never supposed to be a shield to get in front of the cross. I'm supposed to be an open door that shows people the cross. And when I allow my politics, when I allow my nationalism, when I allow my beliefs, when I allow my opinions to come between someone and the cross, then I'm a shield trying to protect something that doesn't need defending. Jesus can stand up and do what he wants to do. I don't have to defend him. I need to show people the way to the cross. And there will always be people that don't understand it. Even back here, Paul says to a, the cross is foolishness to those who are dying, but to those who, of us who have been saved, it is life. I'm not there to set up, and for too long, and this isn't a condemnation, it's just an observation, but for too long, the church 
globally, the church in America has said, we've got to have this rule and this rule and this rule and this rule. And we've thrown rules at people. If you'll only do this, then your life's going to be perfect. If you only follow these rules, then you're going to have the perfect marriage. And then when you get somewhere and marriage is hard and life is hard and things are painful, we say one of two things. Either the church was lying or God's not real. And we can't be a part of a people that just perpetuate that. We have to be a people that say, you know what? Life is hard and life is painful and there's broken people all around us who will hurt you, but that doesn't make God any less real. I don't need to defend the cross. I need to be an open door that says this is the cross. And if people take shots at it, Jesus is big enough to let to speak to them. The Holy Spirit is big enough. Believe it or not, he's even bigger than me and he can deal with those people. Because the church has to be a place of acceptance of all people and let God sort them out. The church has to say, come one, come all, and enter. And, but what about if they're this kind of sinner? What if they do that? What if, they're, what if they live an alternative lifestyle? What if they listen to wrong music? What if they do this? What if they've had an abortion? What if they got a divorce? What if, who cares? Let God, through his Holy Spirit, deal with them. Let us love them and say, come on, come in, kneel down and pray. Am I excusing anyone's actions? No, I'm saying there's a higher standard for all of us, but that Holy Spirit puts that deep within our soul. Not the church, not the spiritual leader, not somebody who has a massive following, and so he's got a lot of flex in the media, but the Holy Spirit will do that, and they'll never hear the truth of how much they're loved and how deep grace is and how forgiveness is for everybody if we're so busy guarding the cross that we become a shield instead of a door. Let's be a door, people. And that's what Paul is saying is stop defending it and start opening it and saying, come on, you guys, come in. And it starts with me talking with the person on my left and my right not getting up on stage because then I have a position, not getting to be the worship leader because then I have a position, not getting to be the head of this ministry or that ministry. Do I want you to be involved? 100%. I wish everybody in our church was involved in a ministry every week. But that doesn't determine whether or not you have a voice in the people around you. Title doesn't determine that. Willingness determines that. Father God, I thank you for Paul, and I thank you that people were willing to lay down and risk their lives for something greater than us. Jesus, I thank you for your constant grace, and may we be people who become a door, who become an inviter, who become a greeter, and not somebody who becomes a shield to guard something that you can defend yourself. I pray that your Holy Spirit would pour out upon us, God, that we would be a people that are changed, that we would be a people that are moved, that we would be a people that are not the same because we've had an encounter with you, and yet we don't use that as a weapon against somebody else, but we use it as an invitation for all to come. May we be a people who say, come, come, come. You're invited, you're wanted, you're needed, you're loved. God, let that be who we are in your name. Amen. On the day I talked